0: Well, good morning. Happy New Year to you. Really. <laughs> so grateful to see each of you and pray that God has blessed you and your time with families and friends over the last couple of weeks. We are entering a new year and I hope that your heart is expecting great things from the Lord in 2015. I was talking with someone after the first service and they said, you know, we just don't expect things to happen anymore when we come to church. And this dear sister said, but I remember a time when we came to church always expecting that God was going to do something. God was going to save someone. God was going to speak. And so as we enter in 2015, I hope that you come with an expectant heart. Last week we... Talked about praying like Jesus and we laid a foundation for what we're going to do in a couple of weeks we're going to study prayer as we enter into the new year and that is absolutely vital because before God does his greatest work he tends to move in the hearts of his people first and call them to pray and so if God is stirring your heart in that way you're going to be deeply encouraged If not, I hope you'll be challenged to embrace this new thing that I think God wants to do in our church, in our lives. I'm going to be out next Sunday. I'm going to go see our grandson. He didn't get to come home for Christmas, so I don't hardly miss on Sunday, but we're going to go and visit with him. So next Sunday morning, you get a treat. Somebody else will be speaking. Uh, Tommy Vinson, a retired pastor, longtime friend from Memphis, will be here speaking. And he is a delight. If you don't know Brother Tommy, uh, you will be grateful for the opportunity to have heard him next week. And so uh, I encourage you to, to look forward to that tonight. Our pastor of children and families will be speaking in our evening service, Todd Mayno. And he will be the first of several of our staff that will be speaking on Sunday nights through January. And so I hope that you'll come looking forward to that. Ryan Perkins, who was our student intern last summer, will be here next Sunday night. And we're going to have a focus on students in our evening service and he's going to be speaking as well and so we have lots of things that are getting ready to happen uh, neat things that are happening in our church hope that you have an expectant heart the title of this morning's message is how to sustain a passion for god very appropriate on january 4th i don't know what resolutions you made but statistically most of you have already abandoned them And so it's very appropriate that we talk about sustaining something, but we want to talk today about how to sustain a passion for God. And I want to call your attention to Revelation chapter 2. We're going to begin reading there in just a moment. Revelation chapter 2 is the first of, of a series of letters that were written and addressed by the Lord Jesus himself through the Apostle John to seven churches that were in the Roman province of Asia in the first century. Today, that Roman province is a nation called Turkey, and this letter, this first letter we're going to read about is to a church in Ephesus, but it really helps us understand when we start talking about how to sustain a passion for God. Uh, some of you know I've had an interest and my own uh, desire to, to know and experience the presence of God and in that pursuit have studied and read about a lot of other historical instances where God has come. We typically call that revival or spiritual awakening. And we experienced several of those in our own country. One of the last major experiences of that was from about 1968 to the late 1970s, depending on where you lived in the United States, we called it the Jesus People Movement. And one of my my bucket lists, desires or dreams is to make a video about that interviewing people who could help talk about what God was doing during that period of time and I I have several interviews already done and as you know we we have done other videos in the past um, in my in my work and would love to do that someday I was talking to a pastor about this a couple years ago sort of kind of casting a, a vision for that with him he's a pastor of a large growing church here in Arkansas and I was describing for him some of the significant differences in church life in the early 1970s versus today. And some of you know. And as I was talking with him, he began to tear up and he said, you know, Don, I remember those days. He said, I was a brand new Christian. And so many of us came to know Christ during that and we had, I was part of a a youth group. He said, "Our, our church youth group's not even that big. Today. And it said, He said, kids came from all over, and he said, I was so excited about the Lord. He said, I used to ride my bicycle through neighborhoods and just randomly stop at houses and knock on doors and share my faith with whoever answered the door. And as the tears flowed down his cheeks, he said, but I'm not like that anymore. He said, "I, I need to be like that again. I need to have that passion again. And what he's describing was something missing in his own heart and life that that some of us can testify to this morning. And we know a whole lot of churches can testify to that in our our nation. We we don't need to hear the statistics again, how so many churches in our country are plateaued or declining in people's activity. The average church attendance is well below 17% nationwide this morning. In Cross County, it's about 25%. We're a little bit better. But think about it. 75% of the people in the county are not in church this morning. We know that's happening every week. And pastors are experiencing that and they're discouraged. 90% of pastors, either themselves or they know someone who has considered leaving the ministry because it can be so discouraging. 70% of pastors, according to one study, 70% are depressed daily or weekly. If it's daily, it probably falls on Monday. They just get down. And I think the thing that's most heartbreaking is the statistic I read that said that when pastors are surveyed, 38% of pastors will say that the only time they ever open their Bible is to prepare a sermon. They don't open their Bible for personal study. They don't open their Bible for personal devotion. 38% are in that condition. I tell you, they're missing something. And, and depending on who you read, Gallup and some of those others, they'll tell you that 90% of the American people believe that there is a God. But when you dig a little deeper and you ask them, tell us about the God you believe in, 76% of those people that believe in God, believe in a God who is very dark, very harsh, very negative, very critical, or very aloof. And so there's something missing. And I believe the thing that's missing is the word passion passion according to the online version of the oxford dictionary passion is defined as a quote strong and barely controllable emotion and you've experienced it perhaps as a believer at some point in your life i hope that you have if you're a student you went to camp and you experienced passion Or maybe as an adult you went to a conference or a revival meeting or some kind of special Bible conference and you experienced passion coming out of that. Or there was a period in the life of your church or Sunday school class where you experienced something, the presence of God, and you came out of that experiencing passion but no more. And it's missing. God made you and me to be passionate about him. And so the question this morning is, how can you sustain your passion for God? How can you sustain it? How can you keep that going? The answer, I believe, is surprising as we read the opening verses of Revelation chapter 2. How can you sustain your passion for God? There is a way, number one, recognize when your passion has been lost through misplaced appetites. some point, you have to stop and look at your life and say, yeah, I'm not there. That's not happening to me. I don't feel that passion anymore. Listen to verse 1. Revelation chapter 2. To the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. Each of those lampstands represents one of those seven churches that are being described in the province of Asia. And so he is walking among them, the very presence of Jesus Christ. He's walking among them. He says, say, say to this one, the angel of the church of Ephesus, I know your works, verse 2, I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil. And you have tested those who say they're apostles and are not and have found them liars. And you have persevered and have patience and have labored for my name's sake and have not become weary. Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. How do you describe or measure a church that is healthy and vital and strong? Jesus says, I know your works and your labor, We would describe that in terms of activity and attendance. He says, I know your patience, your perseverance and your patience. He knows, I know that you're you're sticking with it. You're working and you're not not moving away from the activity. And we would talk in terms of commitment. We would look at Wind Baptist Church and we'd say, our attendance is good. Our activity is good. And we have people who are committed to what we're doing here. He says, I know that you cannot bear those who are evil. Here's a church in Ephesus. They are a moral people and they are concerned about morality and they can't handle immorality. They're very concerned about what is right and what is wrong. And then it says, you have tested those who say they're apostles and they're not and have found them liars. They're concerned about doctrine. Look at that. Activity, attendance, commitment, morality, doctrine. It all sounds good and yet they were in a terrible situation something was terribly wrong. I suspect this took them by surprise when they heard what Jesus said. By most observers, including themselves, this was a great church, but something was terribly wrong. And the original language, the word order emphasizes what is most important to the writer. You and I have a certain way of putting our words together so people can understand what we're saying. We don't mix up our nouns and verbs and get the the sequence out of order. When they spoke and wrote Greek, they put words in order in terms of importance. So listen to this word order in the original in verse 4. He says, in verse 4 says, Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Listen to the original word order. But I have against you this, the love, and he's talking about agape love, this, the love, Then he kind of modifies it. He says, what kind of love? You, your love, the first love. Your first love. I have this against you. This, the love, you, the first. And then at the end of the sentence comes the all-important verb. You abandoned. You abandoned. You, You have left something. And the word is so powerful, it is used elsewhere in the New Testament for divorce. You have divorced yourself from something. You you have done it. It was total, it was complete. It was not something that was about to happen, it was not something that was in process. It was done. They had lost it. That means practically that I can be a pastor, and I am, I can be a missionary. I can be an active church member and I can be serving diligently and I can be working at it very hard and I can be saying yes when people ask me to do things and I can serve on committees and and show up at special events. I can be doing all of those things and be absolutely outside the will of God. How can I say that? Because Jesus said the greatest commandment is you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. And I'm just going through the motions. If it's not a passion for God that's driving, leading, motivating, fueling my activity, it's wrong. Don, how is it possible that someone can lose his or her love for Jesus and remain an active participant in the church? how's that possible because passion the passion that we're talking about when the Ephesians lost the passion they didn't lose the will to serve they lost their appetite for Jesus passion is not lost through the will it's lost through the appetites that you and I have and the appetite of the Ephesians had shifted from the Lord Jesus to other things you know, that can happen to you and me. You and I can be so enamored with our church and with my Sunday school class or my pastor. I can love the worship service and our worship pastor and our different staff members. I can love these things. I can be enamored with these things. I can be active with these things. Don't we have a great church? I want my church to grow. And we can be all caught up in that stuff. And in being caught up in that stuff, we have missed the main thing. And that's him. Children are funny. When we had little ones at home, and some of y'all saw this this Christmas at your house, if you had little ones there. You have a little one that's kind of just now getting ambulatory. They're walking around. You know, they're pulling over things. Um, And you've worked really hard to buy just the perfect gift for that little one. You made maybe even a sacrifice. You drove a great distance. You worked really hard at it. You bought just the right gift, you wrapped it up very nicely, you put a great bow on it, and on Christmas Day, you put this gift in front of that barely ambulatory toddler child. And what do they do? They take the bow off, and maybe they taste it. And then they unwrap the paper, all the pretty Christmas paper, and they unwrap all that paper, and then you help them open the box, you get out your pocket knife, you open up the box, and you show them this amazing gift that you bought for them, and they smile at you and then proceed to play with the paper. Ever happened to you? Did it happen this Christmas? They play with the paper. It's colorful. It's fun. It makes noise. They're playing with that. You know what? Some of us are doing that. Some of us are doing that we're missing the greatest gift we're playing with the paper we're in all the trappings of christianity We're with all the trappings of church all the stuff we enjoy all the things that we we like but we have missed the main thing and that is our own passion for god our own love for him i want to recommend that on a regular basis in your time alone with god each day or maybe even several times during the day as you are working as you are serving whatever it is that you do it would be very wise to pause and to look at your life and say not at your performance not am i doing good today am i doing right today did i lose my temper did i hold my composure and the, am i saying the right things not the not your outward performance but your heart am i in love with jesus Am I doing what I'm doing because I'm in love with Jesus? So how can you sustain your passion for God? You have to recognize when your passion is lost. you got to admit it. Not to me, not to anybody else. I'm not worried about that. you got to admit it, though, to yourself and then go before the Lord. Something's broken in me. Something is missing. And then secondly, if you're going to move forward, secondly, understand that your love for God this is very important, is dependent on knowing his love for you. We tend to get it all backwards. In verse 4 again, he says, Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. And so most sermons on this passage in Revelation 2 run something like this. Jesus says you have left your first love. Do you remember the time when you first became a Christian? You were so excited for him You rode your bicycles and witnessed to people at their doors. You did all these different things. And and what you have to do is remember what you used to do and then go back and do the things you used to do. Express how you love God the way you used to love God. The problem with this teaching is that very conclusion that our first love by definition is how we love God. I believe that's what Revelation 2 is talking about. The Apostle John wrote Revelation. He wrote so much of the New Testament. Listen to what he wrote in 1 John 4 19 that helps us understand this. Listen, we love him because he first loved us. That's how it started. <laughs> that's how this whole deal started. I didn't know him, I wasn't really looking for him, but I heard about him. And I learned about him. And I learned about the good news in the gospel that he loved me. And that's what turned on my love for God. And that's what sustains your love for God. It's his love for you. It was and always is the revelation of his love for us that awakens our love for him. I have tried to illustrate that so many different times here. Uh, Several weeks ago, we used a candle. You remember that? We lit it we dripped the wax and it became liquid in the flame and it dripped into a jar and you could kind of swirl it around the jar for a little bit away from the flame but eventually that wax would grow hard why because it was away from the flame and and god's love is what animates your love god's love for you is what animates your passion for him and so to illustrate that last night what came to mind was this sensor i have in my closet that comes on when i step into the closet watch this See if you can figure this out. All right. I'm here in the dark, and I'm approaching my closet. Now, in my closet, I have a motion sensor, and it does nothing until I show up, until it experiences my presence. And when it does, it looks kind of like this. I move my hand over it, and it senses my presence, and it comes on and it stays on for a while after i leave and that's what happens to you and me we taste we experience something the love of god and we react to that it affects us and we go on for a while with a passion for god but if we don't experience his love again if we don't if we are not conscious of his love again at some point down the road guess what happens to our passion It goes lower and lower and lower and lower and lower until we're just going through the motions. And so how do you deal with that? Well, one of the things you and I can do is we can go to the Scripture and look at the fact of God's love, the fact that He loves us, and we can remind ourselves of the fact of His love. And that's a good starting point. One of my favorite passages on this is Zephaniah 3.17. Zephaniah 3.17. He writes, The Lord your God in your midst. You know, those of us that know Christ, he is always with us. The Lord your God in your midst, the mighty one, he will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. And I don't know what you look at and what you think about when you look in the mirror, but this is how God responds to you. This is how he sees you. He gets excited about you. He's in love with you. He's crazy about you. I love the paraphrase. A professor and pastor named Sam Storms translates this passage this way. He said, the Lord your God is with you all the time. He is a powerful and mighty warrior who saves you. When he thinks of you, he exalts in festive pleasure and with great delight. At other times, he becomes quiet. As he reflects on his deep affection for you. He celebrates who you are with joyful singing. Imagine that. Stepping into the presence of God. And he bursts out singing. The Apostle John refers to the love of God this way in other places. In John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave. His only begotten Son. 1 John 4, 16. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. 1 John 3, 1. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. John 17, 23. Jesus says, I in them and you in me that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them and love them even as you loved me. God loves you even as he loves his own son. The bottom line is you cannot sustain a passion for God apart from your own consciousness of God's love for you. So how can you sustain your passion for God? First, you've got to recognize when your passion is gone. Secondly, Understand that your love for God is sustained by knowing his love for you. And then number three, ask and wait for his love daily. You say, Don, that sounds a little odd. Hang with me. Ask and wait for his love daily. Look at the first part of verse five. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. The word remember there is in the present tense. So he's saying, don't stop remembering. From where you have fallen and so where is where you have fallen? Is it a physical place? No, I don't believe so. I believe it is the knowledge and experience of his love. He says, go back remember what it was like to encounter the love of God. Don't let go of that. Don't don't forget that. The Bible says it and I believe it. God loves me. The Bible tells me so. But that is not all that he has in mind for you. It is not enough to know it with your head. He wants to communicate his love to your heart. I can talk about the fact of my love for my wife all day long. I can talk about the fact that I met her in 1980, that we got engaged in 1981, that we married in 1982, that we had six children, that we're still going strong. I can talk about the facts of that, but that is not enough for me. I need to experience her love. I need to be with her. I need to date her. I need to go out with her. I need to be around her. We need to have time together. It's not enough to know it with my head. I need to know her love with my heart. And God wants you to know his love that way. Charles Hodge, a professor, writer of the 19th century, wrote this about the love of God. It does not descend upon us as dewdrops, but as a stream. Not little drops, but as a stream which spreads itself abroad through the whole soul, filling it with the consciousness of his presence and favor. I like that. The old Moody was a great evangelist of the 19th century. He lived about the same time as Charles Hodge. He was the Billy Graham, the very first kind of Billy Graham of the 1800s. And before he became famous as an evangelist, he was a pastor in Chicago. And had the biggest church and had great success and was doing really really well there were these two little ladies that he would see sometimes in his church and he could tell they were praying he once went up and asked them what they were praying for and they said well we're praying for you pastor he said well thank you He said, we're praying that you would know God fully that the Holy Spirit would fill your life pastor of the biggest church things going well it disturbed him. In 1871, there was a fire that burned up most of Chicago. And on that evening before the fire, he had not given an invitation following a sermon. And it plagued him. It disturbed him. It bothered him that there were people, perhaps, in that service, he had not given an invitation, and they had gone out to their desk that night. He determined from that day forward, he had always given an invitation. After the fire, he goes to New York. He's deeply, deeply troubled. To raise money for people who had survived the fire to help rebuild Chicago but his heart's not in it he turns aside to his hotel room and this is what he wrote down eventually now he had this encounter with God it was a life defining moment we talked about that in November it was a life defining moment for him he rarely talked about this but he did write it down one time this is what he said 1871 one day in the city of New York oh what a day I can't describe it I seldom refer to it. It is almost too sacred an experience to name. I can only say that God revealed himself to me, and I had such an experience of his love that I had to ask him to stay his hand. Can you imagine that? Experiencing the love of God in such a way you've got to go to God and say, stop. It's too much. I asked him to stay his hand. I went to preaching again. The sermons were not different. I did not present any new truths, and yet hundreds were converted. I would not now be placed back where I was before that blessed experience. If you should give me all the world, it would be small dust in the balance. A life-defining encounter with the love of God that took a man who was a good pastor, great pastor, successful pastor, but made him a global evangelist who helped lead thousands to Christ, sustained by a passion for God. You say well Don that's all nice to hear Charles Hodge and Dale Moody but is there anything in the Bible that suggests that we can experience the love of God directly you bet there's all kinds of verses Romans 5 5 is one but the one I want to give your attention to this morning is found in Ephesians chapter 3 verse 14 the Apostle Paul is praying for the Ephesians the same people who were getting this letter in Revelation 2 and what does he pray for the Ephesians? He says, for this reason, I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. That he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might through his Spirit, where? In the inner man. That Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. I thought they were already saved. These people are already Christians. But he's asking for something that they don't have yet. that you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. D.A. Carson Professor, Bible teacher, New Testament at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. He's also a founder of a group known as the Gospel Coalition that promotes a biblical understanding of the gospel. He wrote this about that passage, about Ephesians 3. This is what he says. Listen, this cannot be merely an intellectual exercise. Paul's not asking that his readers might become more able to articulate the greatness of God's love in Christ Jesus or to grasp with the intellect alone how significant God's love is in the plan of redemption. He's not not praying that they just be able to talk about it or understand it better intellectually. Carson says this, he is asking God that they might have the power to grasp the dimensions of that love in their experience. Does God want you to know his love? Yes, so much so that I would encourage you as your pastor and as your brother in Christ to sit before him day by day and say, dear God, show me, speak to me, help me understand, help me comprehend your love like this. Like a baby who comes up to the ocean for the very first time And sticks his toe in the water and he can't tell you very much about it but he knows it's real and he knows it's really really big ask and wait daily how can you sustain your passion for God first you got to recognize when the passion's been lost secondly understand that your love for God is sustained by knowing his love for you that's how it starts that's how it's sustained. And thirdly, seek out his love daily. In your time alone with God, sit before him and say, Oh God, I want to know you. I want to know you in your fullness. And the number four, learn to abide in his love. Learn to abide in his love. Look at the rest of verse five. Repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. So he says, Repent, do the first works. Or he's going to do something. And the thing he says he's going to do to me is absolutely terrifying. Here is the Lord Jesus. The symbolism is that the lampstand represents a church, and he's walking among these seven churches of Asia. His presence is available to them, his presence can be known by them, his presence should be guiding them. And he says, But look, He said, if you continue to neglect this issue of your life, if you continue to leave behind your first love, if you continue to set aside my love for you, if you're not going to know me this way, he said, I'm going to take your lampstand away from my presence. He's going to withdraw the very presence of God from that church. I don't know about you, but if you care about such things, that should disturb you. How serious is he? And this is not just true of a church. This apparently is true of individuals because it only can happen if individuals take this seriously. So when he says, repent and go back and do the first works, what is he talking about? Well, I don't believe he's talking about orthodoxy, orthodox behavior, orthodox beliefs, because if that's what he was talking about, well, verse 2 addressed that. He said, I know about your orthodoxy. I know about you doing the right stuff. I know that you're moral people. I know about your commitment. I know. He's not talking about that. So what is he referring to? Well, it's a certain kind of activity because it's the word works. But what kind of works? Well, the kind of works that flow from and experience of the love of God, and experience of knowledge and comprehension of the love of God. Meaning, I do what I do. I have a passion for the God who has passion for me. And so it's work, it's effort, and you may on the outside, you may look the same to your spouse, you may look the same to your neighbors, you may look the same to other people in your class, but suddenly there is within you a whole new reason and motivation for why you serve and why you do the things you do. And it's love for him. Here's what Jesus calls you and me to do. In John 15, verse 9, he says, as the father loved me, I also have loved you. As the Father loved me, the way the Father loved the Son, I also, in that same way, I have loved you. So what does he say? Abide in my love. Live there. Make your home there. The same love the Father has for the Son, that's the love he has for you. He says live in that. He doesn't say go back and try to get your love up. He doesn't say, he's not talking about you trying to recreate your first initial passion for Jesus. He's not saying that. He's not even telling you to go back to anything. He's just saying, I love you. I love you massively. I love you in this overwhelming way. I love you like a mighty flood. He said, would you step into that, please, and live there? Would you please live in that? Would you abide in that? Would you make that your home? Because I really do love you, child. You are mine, and I rejoice and sing over you. Here's the key. I believe that for you and I to do that, for you and I to step out of of our existing life and the way we do life, that you and I have to make a choice to choose Jesus and make him central to our life. And that means excluding all the other things I could choose. Now, that's a big deal because you and I have lots of things that could distract us and hold our attention and and use up our time. We have hundreds of channels on television. We have iPads. We have iPhones. We can't even go to lunch without everybody looking at the iPhone. I mean, we're just covered up with distractions. And what you and I have to do is choose, choose him and not choose the other things. This past week, my wife and I celebrated our 33rd wedding proposal anniversary. It's not our wedding anniversary. That's in May. But we also celebrate when I proposed to her. It's a really cool story. I'll tell you about it sometime. But when I proposed to Gail, here's what I didn't say. Okay, listen. Here's what I did not say to her. I did not propose marriage saying, Gail, here's the deal. There's no one out there who wants to marry me. You're the only one available, the only option I have, so will you marry me? And what makes marriage so powerful is not because this is the only person for me. It's because I'm choosing this person apart from all the other options. That's what makes it so powerful. When you and I choose Jesus, we're choosing him that way. I could have said it this way. To Gail, and I didn't say it this way either. I could have said it this way Gail, I have thousands of options. That was probably a little delusional. <laughs> but you are the one I choose, you're the one I want to spend the rest of my life with. There was no one else out there who even remotely compares to you. I could have said that. And what I'm what 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 I'm suggesting and what I'm asking you, what I'm pleading with you to do is my brother and sister in Christ is to choose him. Following Christ is not about saying no to a bunch of stuff. So many times we think becoming a Christian is, well, now I don't do this, I don't do this, I say no to this, I say no to this, I say no to this. It's not that. Following Christ is saying yes to Jesus yes, to Jesus. All the other things I could choose, I choose you, Lord. I choose to give you my time. I choose to give you my attention. I choose to give you my life. If you're a believer today, that's a choice you can make today. You should make it every moment of the day. You should make it every morning when you spend time alone with Him. Lord, I choose you. Flood my heart with your love. Let the love in my life, would it explode? Would it fill me? Would it overcome me? Would it motivate me today if you're here and you don't know christ you're saying well pastor you've talked about how god loves christians but what about non-christians i have not chosen him i have not followed him i don't live for him does god love me you bet you bet let me give you one verse romans 5 8 says but god shows his love for us so he's about to tell you some way that God proves his love for you, okay? God shows his love for us. Here's the proof. And that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You're saying, Pastor, you don't know what I've done. I have messed up, and before I could think about trying to join a church or follow Christ or something like that, I got to clean up some stuff. I've got to make some things right. I've got to change. I've got to get better. And I've got to do better before I can come and, and trust Christ. Did you hear what he said? Did you hear the verse? The love of God is shown to us. God shows his love for us. And that while we were still sinners, while you were still messed up, before you did anything right, before you did anything that pleased God, while you were in that condition, God shows his love to you. Christ died for you. whatever was necessary to accomplish your salvation, he's already done it. Everything necessary for you to be forgiven, he's already done it. Everything necessary for you to live a life in the stream and the flood of the love of God, he's already accomplished that. He just says, live there, live in my love. And all you have to do is come and receive the salvation he offers you as a gift. Receive it. You're not going to make yourself good enough you can spend a thousand years you're never going to be good enough and the time is now he loves you friend he loves you Jesus on the cross is forever an eternal proof that he loves you in a moment when we stand and sing there'll be pastors standing at the head of each aisle and they'll be prepared to talk with you if you want to put your trust in Christ and receive him as your Lord and Savior. You say, Well, I've still got some questions. Come. They'll take the Bible, they'll answer your questions with scriptures that you can read for yourself. You have to take our word for it. Please don't. You can read in God's revealed holy word the answers to your questions. And these pastors are here to help you, they'll counsel with you, they'll pray with you. And I want to invite you to come when we stand and sing. Do it boldly, do it without shame. Jesus said, if you'll confess me before men, I'll confess you before my Father who's in heaven. And so we want to give you the opportunity to do that this morning. Child of God, brother, sister in Christ, would you make that choice afresh? Say, Lord, I choose you. I choose you. and, And Lord, you have told me to abide in your love. And Father, as best I know how, I'm going to step into the mighty flood of your love for me. And I don't want to live another day outside of the love of God. I don't want to live another day without a conscious recalling and experience of the love of God in my life. And so, Lord, I say yes to you. You may have a burden on your heart. You may need someone to pray for you. These pastors will be glad to pray with you. You may just need to pray here at the front, the altar. If that helps you, feel free to do that. Grab a friend, say, come pray with me, and just pour your heart out to the Lord. He loves you. He hears you. You can just bow your head right there while the rest of us are standing and singing but as God has spoken to you the God who loves you how you respond to him would you please bow your head and close your eyes our father thank you thank you Lord for being a mighty and awesome God who's done great things for his people whose name is holy whose mercy rests on those who fear him thank you almighty God that you are strong that you scatter the proud and the imagination of their hearts, that you put down the mighty, but you exalt and lift up the lowly ones, people who are crying out to you, people who are needy. You are the one who feeds the hungry. And so, Almighty God, would you come? Would you answer the cry of that one soul who says, Lord, I, I need to know your love not with my head, but with my heart. I need to know that you love me. Would you answer their cry? Would you walk among us? You are welcome here. And may the attitude of our hearts and the response of our minds and our hearts to you give you even greater cause to rejoice and sing over us. For we pray it in Jesus' name.